This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the New Ethiopian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt and I'm joined by Matt Withers. Hello there. And Cash Boyle. Hello. Now then, it's been a long time, hasn't it? It seems like eons ago. A lot has happened. But firstly, Cash, how was your Christmas? Um, it was It was fine. I mean, I'm not like the biggest Christmas lover anyway. So for me, it was just kind of regular. Um, I spent it sort of here obviously in london um and had like a bubble with a couple of pals who were in a similar boat and we actually perversely kind of enjoyed it um but at the same time i, I guess it was uh, a bit strange but overall happy enough good and uh matt i can't really remember uh, <laughs> you took my tip then on how to approach christmas this year and as soon as the podcast had finished cracked open a bottle of something it was it was less that the fact it just seems like an awfully long time ago now doesn't it it's been like a long time ago doesn't it i was trying to remember back and we've had so many seismic political changes just even since then alone that like you say matt it feels like a lifetime ago and can i just ask because i know the listeners will be interested what were you doing at 10 o'clock on christmas day evening not watching Mrs. Brown's boys. <laughs> we've had we've had some 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 jolly news on the ratings, of course, haven't we? Since then, <laughs> that were very poor. And um, dear BBC, please drop this terrible terrible show as soon as possible. Uh, well, honestly, I guess they'd have to pay some compensation, but it would be worth it. Do not put us through this again next year. We do not want to have to relaunch our drop 
Mrs. Brown's I mean, not just next year, through. every no, year. Forever, yeah, yeah, forever. Yeah, and never repeat it on iPlayer either. Well, right. listener, um, Christmas is done. Happy New Year. We're well and truly into this year, which already seems like it's been about four or five months long. Um, so where to start? I guess, uh, well, we, we should go right back to the day that our last one came out because Christmas Eve was odd, wasn't it? We had the bad news that we were... Um, changing the lockdown rules and you weren't going to get five days, three families, all that. Uh, and then and then the news about the Brexit deal. So we had this sort of glum news and then about the variant and all that kind of thing. And then we had what was presented by number 10 as better news in the Brexit deal. Matt, I'm going to start with you. What do you make of the deal? Um, well, I, I think it is as good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. People may have seen that I... I made the, uh, the the Daily Express online saying this in, in the week after they picked up our, an interview I gave to Turkish TV. Uh, oh, that's it. I just wanted to mention that, actually, Matt, because um, I've now that you're a star, in Turkey at least, um, I have been dealing with some of your correspondence, and it seems that you've been invited to to present what would basically, it seems like Turkey's version of The Wall. Um, are you up for that? Is that the one where um, Danny Dyer inexplicably shouts at a wall, calling it a mug, isn't it? <laughs> it? It is, and they want you to do it in the style of Danny Dyer as well. They seem to think that because you're bald and live in London, you're some kind of sort of I don't know gangster. And uh, so, yes, you will be expected to do to, to to call the wall a mug and perhaps even lay the nut on it. <laughs> I'd be, I would be very happy to you're do that. You're made for that role, Matt. I can <laughs> once, once you're allowed to travel, I will happily go over to Istanbul and shout whatever the Turkish is for coffee off you mag. And, uh, <laughs> and I imagine you'll have a glamorous assistant as well. Because you remember Jerry Helliwell made her TV debut, I think, on Turkish television as a glamorous assistant. So I'm trying to get that rule for myself because it, I am nothing if not glamorous. <laughs> Should we talk about this deal? <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, you know, we can all be agreed it's better than the no deal. And as to whether the government ever um, ever intended to embark on, on no deal will be one for the one for the history books. Um, I mean, it, it's it's Finn Gruel, as, as Jacob Rees-Mogg said about David Cameron's negotiations prior to the to the Brexit referendum. It's basically the absolute bare minimum that can be done to keep goods moving across the channel and, and the, the, the North Sea. What, what we can say positively from a pro-European perspective, the terms are so weak and so harsh, really, that, that governments are naturally going to have to try and improve on them by integrating further, remaining within the, the, the zone reach of the, of the EU, as it were. So this is just the beginning of it, as, as indeed our, our, our splash, our, our last week's edition was, you know, the end of the beginning. There's going to be a lot mm. more arguments to be had over this over the next year, five years, 10 years. Um, you know, at the moment that Boris Johnson decided that he was going to prioritise sovereignty or the notion of sovereignty over trade and we weren't going to get anything on things like services, then this was probably the best deal that he, he could have hoped to have get. Um, it's a much better deal for for the EU, I think, than it is for the UK. I mean, they've got everything they want. They've, they've managed to protect the the single market as an entity, and also um, goods are going to continue to move, which they have got a big, um, you know, they they're in the driving seat over that. You know, they've got a substantial surplus versus the UK, so it's a good deal for them. Not such a good deal for us, but if we're going to be positive, and you know, we, we've got Alistair Campbell joining us to talk about. How, how we speak about um, Europe and 
how it will Romanians move on over the next year, then at least this gives us something that we can and will build on. Well, I think, I mean, my view, very quickly, I'll come to you next, Cash, because you, you, you two are far more intelligent with regards to these kind of things than I am. But um, it, given the time scale, which I, you know, I was always opposed to, but in a, but in an end date on it, really, I think I don't know why we had to rush this through. Um, I, it just, it, it feels like the, you know, the the minimum that or the maximum that we could get under the under the under the circumstances it's not a good deal a good deal would be staying with the deal we had we had a good deal um it's not a good deal but it's probably as good as anyone could have hoped for and i think what what is worth pointing out and i i, I try and do this when i write um from a sort of faintly remain angle if i'm writing for one of the regional papers of course um, is that you know no, no one wants to see this country fail. We, we're here, we're opposed to leaving the EU, but nothing would bring us more joy to be wrong. And this is all great news and everyone's happy EU and UK as well. I think that's highly unlikely, but you know we're not we're not anti UK. Um, anyway, Cash, what 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 were your sort of takeaways? I mean, I, I think the deal is exactly what it looks like it's a deal that was announced in the middle of a pandemic on christmas eve so if you look at it in terms of through that lens it very much was i mean it's just it's a bit of a it's a bit of a disservice to say it was cobbled together i don't think anything that's over 1200 pages long was cobbled together at all oh but, well <laughs> some of it was copy and pasted wasn't some, it <laughs> copy paste return i mean but why what, what i would say is that the sort of the the minimalist sort of feel that it has very much reflects the times that we're in and, and that's what what i mean by that in terms of being mm. announced in the midst of a global pandemic on christmas eve i mean it's it, a couple of points that matt made i wanted to like pull back to the first is that um he, he you know you've both said actually that it's better than the no deal and of course that's absolutely true but what a lot of commentators and i agree sort of say when they're looking to look at the when they're looking to assess this deal in terms of its actual merits it's the comparison should be between this deal and what the UK enjoyed throughout the tenure of its EU membership. And obviously this deal is, you know, exponentially worse. Um, and the second sort of point that, that Matt, the, the wording that Matt used that I thought was really interesting was the notion of sovereignty, because that is, in terms of what this deal offers, that is what we're left with. It is a notion rather than a reality, because if you look at one of the sort of the key objectives for Brexiteers, particularly is this, you know, reverence to sovereignty, which a lot of people are wondering, what does that actually even mean uh, in terms of like in real life terms? I know what they sort of, they want it to mean, but I think this deal doesn't really, I mean, it'll be presented and it has been presented that it's a real uh, preservation uh, and promotion of sovereignty. But actually when you look at the detail, so for example, the free, um, the free tariffs that are sort of on, pardon me, the free, the fact that there's, sorry, let me start that again with a brain. The fact that there are no tariffs um for goods and for some services okay that's ostensibly a, a good thing but if you actually look at the detail and the minutiae of the deal um brussels can renege on that and impose tariffs if the uk start in their wording obviously um imposing or implementing unfair trading strategies so really do does the uk have the degree of sovereignty that this that it's most ardent sort of promote uh, promoters or it's most ardent kind of fans would have wanted the answer is no because really the sovereignty is conditional and can be taken away yeah if the uk doesn't comply with certain things in respect of trading so actually it is a notion of sovereignty and 
it does it doesn't feel worthwhile to me to put the entire country through so much just to have a deal that you know ensures the notion of something rather than the reality of it i think it's an excellent point and i, I again I, I wrote something this week you know right then you know we've got our freedoms now what are we going to do with them there doesn't seem to be any any plan we're free and now we're just going to sit down here and stay exactly where we were. You know what I mean? It's so odd. It's like we've been released from this imaginary prison, which never well, was, exactly but we're just going to stay in our cell. Well, that's mean, exactly what it is. I mean, the, the U, being a member of the EU, for, for those that wanted you know, sovereignty, being a member of the EU wasn't a real compromise of that sovereignty. They believe it was. It's been portrayed that that's what it was. But actually, the reality is we don't feel any more free because we weren't restricted before, not in the way that it's been framed in terms of the Vote Leave campaign anyway. No, it's, One of the yeah, things that the, um, I mean, this preposterously named star chamber of apparently world beating Brexit supporting lawyers that the European Research Group got together said was this absolutely protects our sovereignty because we can we can exit it at any time. But the thing about being in the EU, it's, we also had that. It was called Article 50 and we triggered it. So yeah, the, exactly. idea, the idea that, that this is sovereign and being in the EU was not was utterly... Uh, absurd. And while we're talking about the, well, while I'm talking about the European Research Group, because Richard, one of the leading members, um, Ian Duncan Smith, uh, he's, he's answered your question about what happens next because he said that he's jealous of people who are currently 21. What he'd give to be 21 again. Now we can go out in the world buccaneering, doing deals, <laughs> and dominating the world again. <laughs> he's a, uh, he, 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 there's no man that screams buccaneering more than IDS, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the quiet man. He's I mean, we ran louder. an article recently that predicted he's likely to lose a seat at the next election, and I can't fathom why. Um, well, I mean, as it stands right now, I think Boris Johnson is predicted <laughs> to lose his seat at the next general election. Yeah, very true. We're a long way, a long, long way off that. Now, we'll, get, we'll, we'll talk about all these things again, I'm sure, with Alistair, because if, if we've got him in the room, we need to ask him his opinion on us. So let's quickly move on, because Alistair is joining us pretty soon. Um, it's unbelievable that we've spent three years now doing this podcast and about eight minutes on the deal but there you go um and uh but we will i'm sure alistair will have an opinion um what about the fact i'm starting to get worried about this vaccine rollout i have to say and i would suggest there is a group of people that dress quite funny and keep funny hours and all live together and sometimes let's go on holidays together where they have to crawl on the ground quite a lot and get shot at called the army and they're very good organizing things and just standing in one place and telling people where to go and i think it is time to roll them out to make sure this vaccine is getting in people's arms what do you reckon well i i mean it sounds it sounds a good idea i don't think anyone could argue i mean logistically you know the army is so far we're really we seem to be relying on well yeah well there there are questions around that obviously but um i thought Blunkett wrote a really good piece in the uh, Daily Mail some point this week saying how brilliant the army were when they were asked to help out during foot and mouth. Now, obviously, this is a this is a crisis far greater scale than than that. Um, but they do tend to get things moving. And when they ask you to do something, you tend to do it. And we will need some volunteers. That's great. But it seems that we're currently asking for, you know, I, the Daily Mail of, and, the, and the TUC are trying to get 50,000 volunteers. These are not people that would necessarily give the jab, but people that would, would sort of man the queues and all this kind of thing, just getting people in and out and, you know, all, all that stuff. But I guess my point that I'm making with regards to we've got to the point where I think we need to be calling on 
the army is why we knew that this vaccine was coming. We couldn't be exactly sure when, but why are we asking for volunteers now when we should have been getting the volunteers and the places they were going to be happening and um, whether pharmacies could do it and, you know, whether I could pop down to my local football club to get the jab or whatever. That should be done and dusted. That should have been done and dusted in the autumn. Why are we doing it now? You could apply that to so many of the elements of this hand, this crisis, though. Like, if it's the whole thing has just been like reactive by definition. I mean, which is almost justifiable when it's the first time things are yeah. happening. But when it's the same things occurring over and over again, it's unforgivable, really. I mean, I I can't answer that question, Richard. You know, in terms of why wasn't it done before? Because we knew a vaccine was coming, and we just had to wait until we had a date. Because what we were waiting on ultimately it was approval um but when that came everything should have been there ready to go deployed but the reality is that's far too sensible um and sort of like logical in terms of you know this government and, and it just hasn't happened i mean look at there's another a really good example of you know sort of not having things in place the schools are closed again so sensibly the first lockdown there was a huge um digital gap where kids didn't have laptops mm, internet access mm. was sporadic in certain homes etc and so on now schools are closed again you'd think all those things would be in place to ensure digital access because they've already endured a first lockdown but no they're having the exact same problems getting things in place after the fact like they did before so if you look at that you know anal or that comparison the whole thing is totally reactive despite the fact that many of these things particularly the vaccine particularly the outcome of schools closing to use two examples have been totally predictable they could have seen them coming all they needed to do was get everything in place for when the date came and they just couldn't do it. And now we're looking at a vaccine rollout that is ambitious at the very sort of most generous description. As soon as Boris Johnson outlined that provisional timetable, I thought he's ne it's never it's never going to be met. Um, and I think a lot of people thought that. So I think if Boris Johnson had said, we'll, we'll get it done by the end of this parliament, I wouldn't have believed him, to be perfectly frank. <laughs> yeah, true. But, I mean, you know, God, I hope that we have got 13.9 million people vaccinated by the middle of February, more than more than perhaps anything else. Well, the, the lockdown relies on it. And that, I think that's why people haven't gone completely, you know, I suppose there hasn't been like an anarchy-like state since they announced the, the most recent restrictions because it's very much been promised to us all that this is the end. This will be the end because the vaccine will be the end. And so that rhetoric and getting people to buy into that and to continue to comply and do so relies upon them adhering to that timetable. Any sense of a deviation and people will get pissed off and they will just decide you know f this i'm gonna do my own thing because it's been a year of huge unfulfilled promises and people are myself included just tired at this point it is of course always darkest before the dawn i sound like a politician myself don't i but uh, <laughs> matt what do you what do you think is are we heading for yet another snafu i i mean i don't really know what's going i mean volunteer wise i don't know how well that's been managed there's been very little reporting on it certainly we know at the very start of this crisis um three quarters of a million people i think volunteered to um uh to do voluntary work with, with the nhs you know not actually mm -hmm. going into on, onto wards and, and carrying out surgery but um <laughs> But a lot of um i've uh, brought uh, my pliers and i've got <laughs> some nail scissors <laughs> um <laughs> But of course, it came out afterwards that the bulk of those people, that was the last they heard of it. 
you know, they mm. waited for the phone to go or, or, or to get a text or an email or whatever. Nothing happened. So it was what I think if they're, if they're not needed, then fair enough. You know, if we have people who are, but, you know, but are do paid we, do to we, do that professionally, then that's fair do enough. Do we still but, have that data? I mean, or, or did who, they, who, did, you know, did they knows? tick the box to say it was only for only for that particular element? But you see, of, of I, don't, I don't buy this, oh, there's 28 sheets of paper that they need to fill out. They've got to have all this blah, 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 blah. That's all fine, right? I dare say that there is too much red tape, there's too much bureaucracy. But that could have all been sorted out in September and October last year when it, when it didn't need to be rushed. I feel like we're rushing and we're firefighting the whole time. And someone, I can understand that there are elements that are new variant, got to firefight that, the fact that the pandemic even happened at all, got to firefight that. But someone somewhere just needs to put their foot on the ball and go, Right, this is what might happen in the next six months. Some sensible civil servant somewhere surely is saying this to the politicians. Why aren't we planning this? Why are we... It seems like we've got hundreds of people running around putting out fires when we actually just need a group of them to go, this is what potentially might happen in the next six months. Here are things we definitely know are going to happen. Let's prepare for them. And then let's even have some contingency around what might happen. But... I think there's a real argument here um, in favour of the idea that MPs who are ministers should have experience in the field that they are presiding yeah. over. So obviously, Matt Hancock has, is, as far as I'm aware, has never been a health professional in his life. No. Um, Gavin Williamson, not in education, and I could even go, go to school. <laughs> you know, what I mean, the less said about him, the better. But like, he, it, he, he was a very good. fine fireplace salesman. Yeah, and, and well, he, this is uh... what I mean. It's like you know, it's not it's not rocket science. It's like find people who have expertise in the field. And use them, and you know, okay. So if we if we, we can't revise that now, we can't change that. So what people that are not experts, such as the ministers in charge of these departments, need to do is defer to the, the reams of people who are experts who want to give yeah. their input, who want to shape policy. But arguably, there's a huge sort of discord between a lot of you know member experts in certain fields. I and mean, education is the one that springs to my mind here, um, and the minister in charge. So it's not a surprise to me that there is this disorganization because ultimately number one you don't have experts in the particular fields running the departments and number two those department heads aren't always utilizing the field expertise as well as they should be well it's it's interesting it's a very very good point i, I mean if you've ever had a conversation with um a, an american about this as, as i have they find it incomprehensible that whereas the cabinet that Joe Biden has currently put together, every single person in that will have specific expertise and a background in, in the department that he's putting them into. In our system, you move from education to the home office to the foreign office. You know, yeah. you can be a junior minister in the um, in the justice department one moment, and then the next you can be in communities and housing despite having no uh, expertise or knowledge whatsoever. It is it is utterly baffling if you look at it with an outsider's eye. How's that worked out for the Yanks? <laughs> I mean, I mean that's another, I suppose that's another discussion, but I, I, I'm in total agreement with Matt. It's like, it is bizarre if you, I mean, in what other job would you actually, I mean, have you ever seen this stipulated as a, as a, as a requirement? Hello, uh, you don't need to have any expertise to take this role. Apply here. That never, ever happens in real life. Excellent. So we are joined now by, of course, our um, our beloved editor-at-large, um, <laughs> Mr. Campbell, the person who plays the bagpipes at the end of every podcast. Welcome and Happy New Year, Mr. Campbell. How are you? 
I'm all right. Call me Alistair. And also, uh, are you going to keep playing the bagpipes? I mean, I do think it's a good thing to do, but I just want to make sure. Absolutely, gonna... we are. Good. Yes, good. people people love them. Although when we first when I first started putting them on there, the sound was a bit loud, and we did have one chap who said, "Can you turn it down?" Because he almost crashed his car. So we, there was a <laughs> there was a there was a slight almost an incident, but we've sorted that out now. No, the bagpipes are definitely staying. They'll be good. around long after I've gone. Um, so, uh, Alistair, you've written a piece for this week's print edition, um, which sort of laments the loss, I guess. And I really feel your pain in there because, um, you know, I, we, I've interviewed you a couple of times now, and we've spoken a few times. And I know even from the few meetings that we've had, how incredibly competitive you are. So just firstly, just tell us how much pain you felt. At, I know you were asleep, but at 11 p.m. on New Year's Eve. <laughs> um, well, the reason I was asleep was I didn't particularly want to feel the pain. No, you're absolutely right. I do absolutely hate losing. And it's, you know, my mum always used to say it was one of my, my worst traits, but I think it's one of my best. Um, when I wrote about a book about winners, I, I asked every single person I interviewed in sport, business and politics, what motivated them more, hatred of defeat or love of winning. And... Most of them, it was hatred of defeat. And I'm I'm absolutely definitely in that camp. But I also think it's like, you know, I think in sport, when you see, you know, you see great competitors as boxers or footballers or cyclists or whatever, and there is always that sense at the end of it, oh, well, you know, the better team won, the better man won, the better woman won, whatever. And I still, I'm afraid, do feel on this Brexit thing that, you know, we we should. I guess this is what the piece is about. We should have won, right? We shouldn't have lost in the first place, and having lost, we should have won the campaign to get a second referendum. And the fact that we didn't means we all have a lot of questions to answer. So, I guess what I'm saying in the piece is it's no good us all bleating to each other as we do a lot um, about you know how awful the Tories are, how awful Brexit is, how awful Trump is, how awful it is that our the world seems to be sort of tilting in this awful direction. We do have to kind of start from the, you know, the question, well, how did we let it happen? Mm. And I guess that's what I'm, uh, what I'm saying. And I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm for once, I'm basically saying, I don't, I don't know the answer. Um, it, it's become a bit of a, a cliche for like football managers, hasn't it? With go, you know, we, we will learn from this defeat. I mean, what, but and it is. I think we've all we've all learned from defeats, whether it be in our professional lives or personal lives or whatever. But it's a really painful thing to do to go over how how that happened. But do you think that is now absolutely vital for us as campaigners, as much as anything else, to to sort of really dissect what went wrong so that we can start to build towards something else in the future with regards to Europe? Yeah, I mean, I don't mean necessarily kind of you know all sitting down and having a massive great po post mortem and. And what have you? I don't think that's a bad idea, but I think that there's a real. I kind of reflect this in the piece. I think there's a danger that we all just retreat into our kind of what we think and what we know already. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and, and look, I still do feel. I, I think that you know, I'll go over some old ground. I think Cameron was daft to call the referendum. I think something very strange has happened in our politics that means that Boris Johnson can be rewarded to the extent that he has been for lying and for winning by lying. I think that what's happening in America has lessons for us as well. But all that being said, and it's easy to say that when you're on our side of the argument, mm. 
you know, we we must have done stuff wrong. I mean, it's like if I think about I, I will always defend Tony Blair and New Labour and what we did as a government. And I think he was a great prime minister and I think we did a hell of a lot of good for the country and we were in yeah. better shape when we were there. However, one of our big goals was to cement the UK as a strong leading player in the European Union for, and, and basically for that for, to kill that debate. Well, we failed on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you look at, you know, and I say in the piece that I talk about we, and of course, within the kind of whole new European ecosystem, there'll be people listening to this and people will read the paper. There'll be Greens, there'll be, there'll be kind of, you know, moderate Tories, there'll be Scottish nationalists, there'll be, you know, they won't all be in the same we. When I say we, you know, we're all in different camps. But in a sense, I think what I'm trying to get to is like those of us who believe that this has been a terrible step for the country and those of us who want somehow to kind of put that right in some way and it probably won't be i don't think it'll ever be just by kind of reversing something but by finding a new path then i think we do have to be honest enough to say that you know we can't just say it's because they had more money we can't just say it's because they were you know, more willing to break the law. We can't just say it's because Boris Johnson literally is capable of saying black and white and some people are capable of believing him. There has to be something deeper. And, you know, what I hope is that, at least in the within the paper, to get a debate going and get some interesting ideas going as to what that might be. And I think that, I think it's only if you look at the way you've done things in the past that you can maybe think about doing things in the future. And I quote a couple of sports people in the piece, Craig Bellamy, not the footballer, but Craig Bellamy is a very famous Australian rugby league coach. Mm-hmm. And he said, you, you know, he says, as a rule, he said, I believe you learn more from losing than winning. And the same applies to periods of adversity. And a guy called Colm O'Connell, who's an Irish athletics coach, who trains the Kenyan long distance squad. So some of the greatest athletes in the world. And it's, you know, it's one of my favourite quotes ever. He says, the winner is the loser who evaluates defeat properly. Well, have we evaluated the defeat properly? I don't think we've even begun to start. No. And I think, do, do you think that just a simple, a lot of people have said to me, and I've seen certainly on social media, that now is the time to just launch into a into a rejoin campaign. Do you think that's too simplistic? I think it is. I think it is certainly too simplistic to launch into that as a campaign, because I think it's, Funny enough, I got an email today saying, would I write something for this this new rejoin campaign? Now, listen, if anybody asks me, I honestly believe this has been a terrible mistake for the country and that I think we should be back in the European Union. But I think it's very difficult to do right now. I don't see quite how you do it. And I think that there has to be that sense of, of I guess it is soul searching in a way, but also that sense of debate. It's not helped from being frank, when you've got both the Tories and the Labour Party kind of essentially saying, let's move on. I'm saying not, I'm saying let's not move on. But I'm also saying, as we, as we, we have to move on in that we have to accept that we've left the European Union. We have to accept that we're going to have to fill in all these bloody forms every time we go there. We have to accept that we're going to see probably not as often as we should because, you know, the media's not that bothered anymore. They're bothered about other stuff. But we are going to see interviews with fishermen in Devon and eel manufacturing, eel farmers in, I can't remember where that guy was from, who are saying, I voted leave and I wish I hadn't because it's a mess. We're going to have to live with that. However, I, and I'm, I do think that when, when we say move on, I think there's a sense that all of that stuff, which is real and important and matters to the future of the country, 
there's a danger it just gets you know pushed out of the, the national debate and it can't be because the debate about our relationship with Europe is not over as a result of the the deal that went through Parliament it just isn't Oh, I was waiting. I thought Matt. I thought you tried to come in, Matt, before he's well, gone. I, I wasn't. I wasn't. I, I, I will add something to that. Um, I mean, I, I have to be careful how we talk about rejoin because I don't want to alienate listeners and and readers. And it's difficult to take the temperature of the readership. But the letters page, as much as we can, is away. And certainly, we get an awful lot of letters from people who immediately want us to throw our our weight behind a rejoin campaign. And you have to kind of be very polite and point out that it's not like letting your Netflix subscription slip for a month and then a month later renewing it. It's it's a very, very... We're a third, a third country now and we, we treat it as such as if we were Albania or Montenegro or North Macedonia. And Listen, Albania is an accession country. They're, well, they're, absolutely. <laughs> they're, they're, well, they're well ahead on, 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 on that journey. Um, so... We're talking, if we chose to reapply for membership, we're talking a decade from that. It's it's going to be an awful undertaking. Um, so much as there's a lot of people out there, and they're good people, think we should immediately embark on a rejoin campaign, I think we need to assuage that a little. Well, I, I mean, I, I think, think that the, 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 there are ways of... Look, if, I, I mentioned Bill Cash in the piece I wrote for the paper last week. And... I sometimes think Bill Cash's role, because he kind of has got this reputation of being, you know, the Maastricht bore and all that. Um, but I think his role is sometimes underestimated in, in what's happened in, in our country. And I don't necessarily, by the way, put him in the same camp either as the, as the liars and the charlatans. I think he's somebody who always had this absolute passionate belief that the Maastricht Treaty was wrong that it took us too far into the process of integration. And, you know, now, but if you look back, the thing I'd say about him, and when I was on the mirror, I used to talk to him quite a lot. He's known quite well. He used to come on my radio show regularly. And he was somebody who, he didn't go around saying, we've got to get out of the European Union. He went around saying, this part of that piece of legislation is very, very wrong. We must need to try and change it. This part of our relationship with the European Union is very, very wrong. We must try and change it. And I think we need to learn a few lessons from that. I think it's, in a way, it's too easy. And I would say, I agree with you, you've got to be polite with people. And, you, and I understand, you know, as much as anybody, how pissed off they are and how much they wish this wasn't happening. But I think you've got to sort of, you know, you take the People's Vote campaign. Now, that, that was a very, very good campaign in lots of ways, Okay apart from in the way that matters, it didn't win. We didn't succeed. And that was a campaign that I think we had a lot of wind in our sails. We had a lot of obvious support and we were playing into, if you like, I think that the reason why it got so close, we were accepting that we'd lost in the, the 2016, but we were saying the only way you can then undo that is through a democratic process. And that should be on the outcome, the final deal. That's the way. And that's why I think we managed to, to build support in Parliament. And we all know that all went, you know, it went tits up when the election came along. But if we say now, right, we've got to rejoin, I think that those members of the public, we'd feel better, people would feel better thinking they've got something to go for. And we can all sign behind that. And we can all tweet and we can all go and marches with the right letters and blah, 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 blah. 
but there'll be a lot of people out there who'll be thinking, I don't know what these guys are on about. I mean, it's like, I don't see the path. Unless you see the path, then I think it's very, very difficult to, to mount a proper campaign. And so I think, I think what I'm suggesting in this process of kind of trying to work out why we lost um, and going beyond the kind of easy and the superficial, um, I think that's the first stage towards then actually trying to work out whether there is a path and if there is a path, what is it? So we, you, I think what perhaps we're talking about there is, is a more forensic view of things rather than a, you know, the sort of sledgehammer of let's just start a campaign. And who better to front something forensically than Keir Starmer? But you, you've got your reservations about how Labour handled this, haven't you? Um, I do because I, I, you know, I, I get where he's coming from from the politics. I think that Labour are listening far too much to this polling about the so-called Red Wall. It's way more complicated than Brexit. Way more complicated. And I just, I just think, as you say, Keir is somebody who's a forensic and he's got a very good forensic mind. But that just felt very strange to me, and it felt at conflict, at odds with the fact that this incredibly complicated deal covering all sorts of aspects of our national life, economically, politically, security, and everything else, but not covering a lot of our national life. And he announced that the Labour Party was going to vote for it before he'd seen a word of it. I found that really mm. strange. And, you know, even like the kind of, you know, people like the DUP was sort of, saying, well, wait and see, and the ERG was saying, well, we'll have to wait and see and study it and so forth. And, and I, I think that, I think there's just this desire to kind of get Brexit off the agenda. But why, when it's going to be so important to the future of the country, to people's lives and livelihoods and businesses and the way that we live and our place in the world? And so the reason why I argued, including in the paper, I wrote a piece saying, you know, I, I really didn't want Labour to support this. I, I think actually it was, I wanted them to own the opposition to it. Not to the, not to saying, and I just didn't, but I never bought this idea that I know the Tories ran it and I hate when you buy into the propaganda that the other side want you to buy into. It is not true. I agree with what Caroline Lucas say. It is not true that saying you, it's like, for example, I thought Andrew Adonis made a good point. It's like saying that unless you vote for the budget, it means you don't agree with taxation. You know, <laughs> there was a deal that you knew was going to get through because of the parliamentary arithmetic. You knew that. So what's your position on it? And what's going to happen now, instead of when the Brixham fisherman says that he can't, you know, he's, he's going to the wall because he can't afford to export or whatever it might be. And when all these stories start about, you know, when the roaming charges kick in, when the Erasmus effects kick in, when companies, you know, and let's hope they don't. But let's just say the first time a big company says we were going to put massive investment, but now we're not. When that happens, you know, what's Labour saying? What are they saying if unless and I, the, the other place where I fear Labour are going to fall in behind Tory messaging? I mean, it's so blindingly obvious. The Tories have had two big challenges, Brexit and COVID. The bulls them both up. Eventually, COVID will hopefully come under some sort of control. Everything that goes wrong thereafter, a lot of which will be to do with Brexit, they're going to wrap it up as part of the COVID outcome. Now, Labour has to be telling a bigger story all the time. And I just don't. I worry that the position that Keir took so quickly means that they they co-own the disaster if mm -hmm. it goes very, very wrong, uh, but they don't own 
a different narrative, which is we are going to hold you people to account for this. Can I think, just ask, sorry, um, okay. sorry, can I just ask Alistair as an extension of that, do you think that given the climate that we're in, in terms of the COVID climate, and there's been a real focus, I think, with a lot of um, Keir's rhetoric and Labour rhetoric by, by, by proxy on this idea that we have to put on a united front because of the, the extent of the challenges that we're facing. Do you think had this deal been presented in a non-COVID climate, for example, that they would have been so quick to back it? Or do you think it would have been more heavily scrutinised and possibly opposed? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but, but, but I do think that the... I mean, look, COVID does change a lot of things, but I, I think one of the things it's changed for the worse is that, I mean, one of the things I find really odd about our media culture is that we have more media in terms of output than we've ever had. And yet our media and political ecosystems never seem able to be able to absorb more than one big story going on at once. It's really quite strange. So that, you know, COVID was... And also the, the other thing that people don't do is join, join the dots. I mean, I, I would, I actually could, would like to see the Labour Party making the point that the very same people, these are the very same people uh, who are, have been telling us the whole way through that COVID's going well and that we can get rid of it in a few weeks and we'll be done by Christmas and we'll have a great Christmas and then the economy, economic hit won't be so great and all the nonsense and the false promises. They're the same people saying the same sorts of things about Brexit. And I think that, you know, I think it's been really interesting watching Biden over the last few months. And, and, and I think it kind of came to a head last night for obvious reasons. Biden was very cleverly, in my view, without being hysterical. And, and by the way, I accept sometimes I go over the top on this, but it's to make a point that I hope gets heard. But, you know, I think character really, really, really matters. And I think that, that, Trump's character is blindingly obvious, but I don't think Trump, I don't think Johnson's that much different. And I think that what Keir's done in, in backing the deal is he's given Johnson a legitimacy on Brexit that he just doesn't deserve. Doesn't yeah, I completely deserve. agree with that. He's completely like emboldened him almost to sort of to, to present it as a personal triumph, which is what he did when obviously the deal was secured and he was the one saying, I secured this deal, even though as Richard and Matt and I were discussing before you came on that, basically the deal is, is, is minimalist and it's not, I mean, if you look at the detail, uh, it's not particularly, it's not particularly favorable for the UK at all, but of course oh, he's, all. he's taking it, it, it as his it, personal victory that he secured this deal. And like you just said, Alistair, I think Keir, Keir's stance kind of emboldens him and legitimizes him to do that. And that's what, you know, they're all their messaging. I mean, the one thing that this lot are good at is kind of political positioning messaging. That's the only thing they're good at. Mm. Um, you know, and 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 that's all that Johnson and Gove care about, really. Um, and so, at the moment today, you've got this whole thing going on in America. If they were a proper government, right, they'd actually be focusing on Hong Kong today, because that's somewhere we've got a direct responsibility, and you know, yeah. ought to be doing things. America is incredibly important. I'm not saying it's not, and I was glad that Johnson said something last night, however mealy mouthed it might have been, but. They will be thinking, I guarantee this, the main thing in their minds today is how do we avoid the fact that we got too close to him? That's the only thing they're thinking about. And likewise on COVID, you know, yesterday, thousand deaths. I was doing a radio interview in Ireland yesterday. Before I went on, they were talking about how they were really worried about the state of the health service. And the prime minister was warning that if they're not careful, they could end up with 1,500 people in hospital. 
right? And I thought, my God, we've just had a thousand and forty-one died. Um, you know, so they've and and I think that on COVID as well, it's like I think Johnson and the character of the government and the capability and, and quality of the of the ministers, they are right at the heart of this story. And I, I just worry. I think I wrote the, I wrote this for the New European a few weeks ago when I, when I, when I said that I just worry that. Johnson's inside Starmer's head and Starmer's not inside Johnson's head. It's probably fair because Johnson only has one item in his head at any given time. Correct. But <laughs> that means that is why you have to, he, he will have, um, as you know, things go on, there will come a point where he might have Rishi Sunak in his head or he might have mm. Priti Patel in his head and he, you know, he'll be, he'll be worrying and be feeling a bit vulnerable, but in our system, it should be the leader of the opposition that's inside your head the whole time. What are they yeah, going to say? What are they going to do? You know, and I just worry at the moment when he's he's basically saying to himself, because the guy's, as you say, he only really thinks about himself. He's thinking, well, I've I've manoeuvred into them basically backing his on COVID. Um, you know, they're back the restrictions, and then then and and it's really interesting because when Keir, as he did yesterday and as he did on the deal, when he goes through the forensic stuff, I mean, what was extraordinary about the deal? Keir gave an absolutely superb explanation as to why it's absolutely crap for the UK. And then said, we're voting for it because the only alternative is no deal, which, you know, I respect it as a point of view, but I don't quite buy into it. Yeah, I agree. You're done. Do you think, uh, we, I'm concerned, Alistair, and, and growing concerned that... Um, that the, the, the moving on from Brexit a little bit, I'm just interested in, in your thoughts. Uh, that the rollout of the vaccine is is going to is going to cause more and more problems, and we're not going to be anywhere close to the targets that were that have been put out there by by uh, the prime minister. And I, I mentioned earlier again before you came on about um, David Blunkett um, had written a piece um, calling for the army to be used as they were. I know very different crisis, but nonetheless during foot and mouth. Mm. Do you think we got to that stage now where we need to, you know, we really do need to pull out all the stops, and we we can't just leave this in the hands of, of uh, of, of the of, of the government and some, you know, volunteers who are not sure whether they're allowed to help or not. I mean, the the the, the theme. One of the the other themes that I think is 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 applicable both to Brexit and to COVID is this constant theme of over-promising and under-delivering. Yeah. And it goes back to them being journalists. They're basically journalists. <clears throat> so they think, what's the line? We need a story. I know, let's put Nadim Zahawi in charge of the vaccine. So it leads the news. Boris Johnson has appointed minister Nadim Zahawi. Is da, 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 da. I don't know if you heard his interview yesterday on, on, the, uh, uh, on the Today programme. It was mind-blowing. Yeah. I thought, if this guy is in charge, if I'm listening to this thinking... You know, I'm worried about if I don't get the vaccine, I'm not going to live very long. I'm not feeling confident. And, you know, the, the, and, the, and the constant gaps are like yesterday, Hancock constantly saying, you know, the British vaccine and the Union Jacks in the background. And they're relating it all to this kind of, you know, Brexit, Brexit exceptionalism stuff. And yet the public are looking. I, I did a tweet about about um, Hancock. I said, this guy is like. It's like watching the manager of Southend United, who are currently bottom of League Two, going around <laughs> explaining what, how they won the Champions League. Oh, that's it's such a good analogy. Like, no, it's true. It's like, that. Mm, you know, there's is. no kind of sense of modesty about it. There's no sense of humility about it. There's no sense of saying, you know, I mean, if I think the public would feel so much better if they just once said and meant it, 
um, you know, on such and such a thing, we were way too slow. We've got to learn from that. But they don't. At every stage, you know, they're ramping up, they're doing this, they're doing that. And it's all about the story. It's all about the next day's news. It's all about the, you know, keeping their mates in the media happy. And I, I think it's just not a way to govern. I think you're so you're so right, particularly well on, on all those points. But the one that I that particularly resonated was, in terms of, if they were just to show a semblance of humility, if they were just to admit we made a mistake on this, we will learn. Because I don't think there's a human being on earth that can't appreciate the concept of making a mistake and learning from a mistake. And politicians, most of them at least, are human. And so, uh, you know, I think humility would go a long way. But to repeat the same mistakes over and over again, as you say, Alistair, just chasing you know, headlines just, I mean, and ultimately even that pursuit has been futile because the, the headlines have, well, like outside of their kind of, their kind of remit of journalists and publications have been incredibly negative. No, Yeah, but you know what? You know, I, I, I'm not sure they worry about that that much. Really? That's interesting. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why, because I thought it was very interesting. If you see Barack Obama's statement today, hmm. I was really glad he did this. He talked about what had happened in America yesterday and he said that this has been enabled by, this is down to Trump, but it's been enabled by his supporters in the Republic, Republican Party and what he called the me, their media ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, if you look at any day of the week, the Daily Express, now, okay, it's not read by that many people, but it's kind of there, and the mail is there, and the telegraph is there, and the sun is there. And I wouldn't underestimate that how much it matters to them that those papers are sort of, you know, staying broadly on side and they tilt their politics according to that, as opposed to what's the interest of the country. So when you mention, you know, when you talk about David Blunkett's piece and foot and mouth, I remember the foot and mouth when we got the army in. And, you know, it, it is, it's the, it, that was the turning point. That was mm-hmm. because what it said was, it said to the country, this really, really matters, and we are absolutely gripping it. And what I don't think you've ever had a sense of in this whole pandemic is grip. There is no grip. And grip comes from the top and the centre. That is where big cross-departmental challenges have to be managed and, and, and gripped. And, you know, I went, I didn't actually watch his press conference the other day, but I, I heard about this thing where he... He was asked by what, that, that ridiculous thing they do, you know, we'll have two questions from members of the public, yeah. which is just a way of one of the so pathetic, pathetic little sort of media tricks. But anyway, very, a woman came on, she asked about her mum who had schizophrenia, okay? And Johnson did this kind of, I watched it back, and Johnson did this kind of faux empathy bit and then said, you know, and we're doing a lot for mental health, we're putting £12 billion pounds in. Mm. That's just a total lie. Yeah. It's a lie by a factor of 24 and it's like, and I was thinking, you know, if that had been us when we were in power, if Tony Blair had stood up at a press conference and said when we were spending 500 million on something, we're spending 12 billion, I guarantee you that would have been Prime Minister's questions taken care of. It would have led the news for a few days. There'd have been a select committee inquiry and I'd have got the blame. I mean, it's like, you know, they're allowed to operate by different rules because of what Barack Obama referred to as the media ecosystem. Yeah, I think that's a good point. But maybe there's an argument perhaps to say he makes so many of those kinds of mistakes that you can't lead on every single one in the news for a few days. Yeah, but listen, that's how Trump got normalised, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I'm not I'm not saying it's right. I'm just trying to, trying to balance out why, it, why it's happening. 
Yeah. We've taken up tons of your time already, but I just wanted to because we haven't really touched on it, and I don't want to go oh, over. Before Richard, I just yes. before you let Alistair go, I have to I have to ask. Um, Nigel Farage is not somebody we quote approvingly on this podcast, but he has come out and suggested that Tony Blair might be the person to be the the vaccine czar, and certainly uh, Mr. Blair has had uh, many interesting things to say about the the rollout. Is that something that you think he should? he should be considered for and do you think he'd, he'd accept it Alistair? Well you know what is I mean I think Farage is he's repositioning himself for his next stage of his career isn't he um, but I I mean I, again sorry to keep referring to pieces I've written for the New European but I wrote one right back near the start and when I was trying to be fair and reasonable about Johnson's government and I said whatever you think of them there are only four people in the country who have actually got been experience of being the Prime Minister. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May. There are going to be some absolutely massive challenges coming down the track. Why doesn't Johnson call all four in? And they might not do it, but they might. And say, for example, you know, say to Gordon Brown, I want you to work alongside the team that's putting together the PPE. Say to Theresa May, you know, you talked a lot about mental health and when you were prime minister, would you kind of maybe help the health team? Hancock's busy with the virus. Would you maybe take something like that? Like you say, Tony Blair vaccination, whatever. And I think that would have given the country a sense of genuine all in it together. Yeah. I don't think these people believe in this all in it together thing at all. Um, should, I could just say John, John Major is technically still alive. We should reassure people. I beg your pardon. <laughs> The reason I, say, I, I said that is because I, the, when I wrote the piece, John Major was, I think, was in the paper in the same week and was so offside. But you're absolutely right. Sorry about that. Um, well, I was just going to finish off, Alistair, by asking you about Biden and perhaps maybe just some hope for the future, because it does seem rather gloomy in the first week of January. I thought his speech was was good and, and it was good that he was he was out there as quickly as possible when you know we saw the awful scenes um, in, in Washington, what are your hopes for Biden? Can he turn it around quickly, or is this uh, going to be a long haul to turn this mess around? Oh, it's going to be it's going to be really difficult. Um, I agree with you. I think he's I think he's not put a foot wrong, apart from apart from when he slipped over and literally put a foot wrong. <laughs> um, That's forgivable. Yeah, no, I think he's I think he's really and, and I think shown incredible dignity and decency in the face of this utter monster behaving the way that he's done yeah. um but it's i don't think we should pretend it's going to be very 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 difficult it's got he's got a massive job and you know my real worry about this whole sort of trump thing even though trump hopefully will be you know off the scene pretty soon and people will be bored sick of hearing or seeing him given the kind of economic hit that we're all going to take on the back of covid i wouldn't rule out the dangers of either there or here or elsewhere, really dangerous demagogues, not just coming along, but actually succeeding in the way that Trump hopefully looks like he's going to fail. Um, so I think it's going to be very, very difficult. It's obviously the country's still very, very divided. But I think he's got, and he's got, you know, massive issues to do with, uh, to do with the economy, to do with inequality, to do with climate change, China. I think it's going to be, it's going to be tough, and uh, but what I like about him is that he doesn't he doesn't do the false hope that he gives you optimism. He makes you feel optimistic, 
but he doesn't do it by sugarcoating the whole time. Mm. Um, and what happened in Georgia, it got slightly lost yesterday because of the, uh, yes. the mm. violence. But what happened in Georgia was pretty massive yesterday. The Senate runoffs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree. Can't believe I, I can't believe I forgot John Major. Given that I've I've been so nice for the first time, I actually was nice about him in the New European last week. I said I was never nice about him when he was prime minister, and now I think he's terrific. <laughs> well, we'd love to have him on the show. Maybe you can uh, maybe you can put us in touch with him, Meister. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Thank you so much for my pleasure, for Colin, Thank you for so your much. help and for coming on the pod. I uh, love your tree of the day thing that you oh, use on Twitter. You like today's? today's was I, had to, I had to add that in before you leave. I really like it. <laughs> and it's a great column this week. You know, people go and get your copy. It is well worth it. It's a good paper all around, but it's a particularly good Alistair column this week. Well, I, I, all I'm trying to do is to get people thinking a bit. And, and you know, there's a real danger. I see this in, in the letters page quite, and we agree with you. I think letters are really important. But, you know, I think we need to start challenging each other a bit more. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Alistair, thank you so much. You will, of course, be back to play us out. Um, <laughs> don't want to give away any trade secrets, but that is pre-recorded. Um, Alistair, thank you so much for your Thanks, time. Alistair. And we'll thank speak you. again soon. Well, there was uh, Alistair Campbell. That was superb. Um, just a, a, a final thought from you guys, really, I wanted to get on Biden as well. Is Have you got any hope for the for the coming year for the States? I worry about the United States, I have to say. Oh, I mean, I, I, I'm divided on this. I mean, I, I, I love America, you know, after Britain and, and Turkey, German, well, <laughs> after Britain and, and, and Germany, where, where I've lived, America's the country I've spent most time in. Um, so I have a great affection for the place. But while I have hope for Biden uh, and, and Harris, actually, I, I think she, she's going to be probably one of the most important vice presidents um, yeah, in, in, in modern times. Um, ever, I would say ever, yeah. probably. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I hope all the best for Joe Biden's health, but um, it's possible she may take office sooner yeah. than expected. I'm not suggesting, you know, not, not necessarily death. He may choose to step aside after, after two years. Um, so she's going to be very, very important. She's a hugely impressive figure. Um, but it's not, I don't claim any originality of thought to say that uh, that Trumpism won't leave with Trump. You know, um, Alistair referred to what uh, Obama has said about the media ecosystem in, in the States. You know, people like Tucker Carlson are not going away anytime soon. You know, Fox News will continue to feed this narrative. Last night, um, you know, Sarah Palin was treating their viewers to her opinion that actually all these people were anti-far protesters. Um, pretending to be Trump supporters. And an awful lot of people will believe that. Um, an awful lot of people believe that Trump won that election. And that mm. feeling will will channel it into the next person, whether that's Ted Cruz or whoever, who will hold that 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 Trump uh, uh, candle alight. Or, or indeed his own family. They won't be mm. going away uh, anytime soon. So much mm. as I feel very, very grateful that Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris will be taking office, um, the that the what Trump has brought to U.S. politics will not leave with his departure. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think the one sort of ray of sort of hope is that. Well, it depends on. It much depends, I suppose, on what he does afterwards. So everybody knows he's not going to leave. He's not going to go quietly. And I think a big influence in that is the the likelihood and the probability that he's going to face huge criminal uh, sort of criminal charges and different things because obviously he loses his immunity but 
it depends on you know I think that they they were talking yesterday um, on a podcast I was listening to about the pro- prospect of him being impeached again while he's still he remains in office now that doesn't look likely whatsoever but they were they were they were genuinely going that far in terms of looking at what they can potentially do to make sure that he doesn't have the legal right to run for public office again I think if, if, if they can if it can be done that he basically is made to vanish from political life okay they can't stop him from starting Trump TV or whatever he's going to start but if they could get him to vanish from political life with no scope of him returning personally then then that is a good sign but as Matt said you know the remnants of what he has created not least in his, with his own family his ardent followers and people you know civilians that's you know that's not going away anytime soon and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have a huge job to try and bring together what is arguably the world's most divided nation I think um I, I think moves to <clears throat> impeach now are probably less likely because of what happened with the uh, storming of yeah, Capitol building, yeah, because exactly. I, I think they're just desperately worried that there's that the whole of America will ignite, which it's done pretty much annually now for four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't think Biden wants that as a backdrop to him becoming prime minister. The fact that that you know he doesn't, he doesn't want cities on fire. Um, so I think that the hope would be that there is some kind of criminal investigation down the line rather than something that happens while he's still in these final mm. um, days of office. I t- one thing that did cheer me, and we shouldn't <clears throat> make light, obviously, of what happened, because um, there are there are people who sadly lost their lives. But um, did you notice that the chap who was in uh, Indie Dance Act MGMT was uh, in the Capitol building? Did you see that, Matt? That sounds like the sort of band you might be aware of. Well, Jamiroquai, I... the guy from Jamiroquai. No, the guy. Oh, it does look like. G- I hate Jamaica. Yeah, no, there's a band. That was trending last night, and I tried to work out why. I, I know who. I've got the picture in front of me now. I've got page five of uh, Thursday's Times open now, and you're it's right. It's the guy with the sort of I don't know skunk head on and the and the flag. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, a, and just some weird pants. He reminded <laughs> me of there's a, there's a band called MGMT who, who I had a love. Of hits. Yeah, kids and um, time to pretend. And the front of their album, they're sort of dressed like that. I mean, they've had more than one. We've had, we've had these conversations before, Richard, but most notably over Record Belly. They've had four albums now. And I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, maintain- sure, they've had, I'm sure they have. I've, I was just never a massive fan. Oh, I just, fine, yeah. fine band. Um, but you're right, this picture, um, we, should, we should tweet it out, really. It's, it's, um, it's absolutely uh, absurd. Um, one of the other things, I mean, we, you know, as, as you say, it's a very, very serious situation. But I don't know if you saw um, people were tweeting an image from there of one of these guys and somebody had put in the tweet via Getty. You know, and we, <laughs> and we know that means it's a picture that's come from Getty Images in the States. But uh... well, everybody on Twitter was mad. We've got to find this person via Getty. And what kind of a name is via Getty? Oh, anyway? that's brilliant. Well, via Getty has taken some incredible pictures. It's almost like they're a uh, professional. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just on the sort of the, the tweet, the tweet sort of um, sort of thread. Nigel Farage tweeted just saying, Storming Capitol Hill is wrong. The protesters must leave. And then Marina Hyde just retweeted and just wrote, Ooh, game changer. Which just made Because, like, just so absurd. Just the whole thing is, it's not at all like, like, like you, you both say, it's, it's completely hor- horrifying. But there are moments of humor and everything that is horrifying, I think. 
It was a very strange. Uh, it was a, it was the strangest coup I've ever seen, um, quite frankly. And uh, of course, Matt, your adopted nation, Turkey, has had its fair share of coups, um, but they've always looked a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more serious than that one. Anyway, um, I think we should have a quick breather before we get to cash and burn. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Welcome back. Actually, that break gave me a chance to just have a look through what's on uh, Turkish television this evening, Matt. And it seems that you're you're not only a guest on the news, but you're also uh, a guest on Blankety Blank. (laughs) The post-watershed version. Yeah, it's the naughty Turkish blankety blank. <laughs> the real uh, Turkish delight. <laughs> I was on a podcast all about blank. <laughs> Interviewing Alistair Campbell called me a blank. <laughs> Off air. Um, <laughs> for correcting him about John Major. Um, okay, well, um, uh, I think it's probably time for this week's Cash and Burn. Hello. Okay, so um, I actually had sort of two set up. I thought we were going to talk about um, when we were discussing sort of uh, lockdown, I thought we were going to like discuss schools in more detail. So basically, I'm going to give you both a choice. I was going to either do a little bit on Gavin Williamson or basically a bit on Aaron Banks and the leave.eu site. I don't know what you would prefer. I can do either or both. I think We we should do both. But quick. <laughs> okay, yep, that's fine. I can do it quickly. So the, I'll go with the Leave EU side first of all. So basically, this is hilarious. So obviously that's uh, bankrolled by UKIP backer Arm Banks. Uh, they basically migrated their um, registered office to Waterford in Ireland because, and this is the kicker, the pro Brexit uh, website didn't want to lose the .eu part of its address, which which would have been lost had they kept their offices in. The UK post Brexit, so more than eighty thousand uh, domain users with the .eu uh, suffix at the end lost their domain because it was no longer compliant um, with the regulatory framework. But to avoid that, the pro Brexit website Leave.eu actually migrated its registered office to Waterford. So that was my first villain of the week because obviously absolutely the absolutely magnificent. <laughs> I mean, just the hypocrisy just is stinking. But anyway. Um, and the second sort of villain of the week is, I mean, the more obvious one, I guess, in terms of the public discourse, Gavin Williamson. Um, I mean, how he remains in, in post is both not surprising to me, but also shocking. Um, and the main thing I want to focus on, we all know that the school situation has been a total mess from start to finish, but there's two real insidious bits of it for me. The, the first is that uh, it, he and his team threatened legal uh, action against Greenwich council before Christmas because it took the decision to close their schools because of the rising COVID cases Um, and obviously that looked incredibly uh, bitter and childish particularly in light of the fact that they were totally justified in taking that decision so taking legal action or threatening at the very least against Greenwich Council is obviously in such bad taste and that's the first aspect of his villainy. The second is that despite the fact that any person with a brain could have told you that schools shouldn't have reopened because of the new variant and the number of COVID cases generally, they decided to first release this list, uh, which omitted Greenwich of um, school, primary schools, pardon me, that would be uh, closed in London boroughs for the first two weeks. Secondary schools were still due to return from the 11th, but then all of that was scrapped after one day because 
they had to basically announce the the national lockdown now the idea that they forced some schools to go in uh, and teachers to go in and pupils to go in put themselves at risk just for one day before announcing the national lockdown that's closed all schools is just totally ridiculous and unforgivable and that is why he's my second villain of the week alongside Aaron Banks. Yes it was I mean I think every parent could see it coming couldn't they I think that, I don't think there was any huge shock it was a matter of when rather than if but just again just the firefighting the chaos of it and it's so unfair you know I've got small children well they're not so small anymore I've got one small child and you know and he loves school he's desperate to go back to school and was gearing up to go back to school and then all of a sudden told you're not going back and we don't know when you're going back and that's fairly heartbreaking for a for a five six seven year old Um, I mean I've would have personally have loved it and put my feet up and be watching, you know, something knots landing or sons and daughters. Um, <laughs> yeah, but... put parents in such a bad position in terms of obviously homeworking and obviously, you know, childcare and things like that. But no one's denying that it's the necessary course of action. But again, it's the lack of clarity. It's the lack of consistency. And I mean, with secondary schools as well, we were doing a lot of this on patch where their initial remit prior to the Christmas holidays was, we're going to roll out mass testing at school. So you're going to go back a week late because we want you to prepare for this mass testing and staff are going to be sort of trained on how to do it. And that's its own question mark in terms of whether that should even have been expected of staff. But that's what they went off for Christmas with the idea in their head. So preparations would have been taking place. They would have been putting work in to affect that. And then all of a sudden schools are just shut and all that work is entirely pointless. And it's just just, just no consideration for people's lives or livelihoods or, you know, happiness and well-being, And yeah, really, most of it incredibly avoidable. Quite, quite. Well, roll on when we can get the kids back to school. I mean, yeah. I don't think any pair, if, if, if you're listening to this and your kids have been watching Knots Landing and Sons and Daughters all week, <laughs> then I think, firstly, great choice of TV show. But secondly, don't beat yourself up, guys. You know, the, uh, those people on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram are looking all perfect, homeschooling their kids, are doing it for that picture, and then it's chaos. Just, <laughs> you know, honestly, don't worry about it. The kids will catch up. Everything's going to be fine. No one, no 80-year-old in 65 years' time is going to be going, do you know what, my entire life has been ruined because I had seven weeks off at the start of 2021. It Agreed. is awful. It is awful, and God Please let the kids go back to school as soon as possible. But don't beat yourself up. You are not feeling them if they are watching, indeed, Knots Landing and Sons and Daughters. Cash, have you ever even heard of Knots Landing or Sons and Daughters? No. <laughs> I remember Sons and Daughters. I remember the name Knots Landing. I well, Knots Landing was a spin-off of Dallas. I've heard of Dallas. It was, yeah, Knots Landing was the spin-off. That was like their cousins and their aunties and uncles. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so completely. I can remember the music to Sons and Daughters. I'm not going to sing it. But I Sons and Daughters, love and laughter. It was one. it was a Reg Grundy production, Co- as was, was Neighbours, of course. We ever need like a new sort of like finishing part to the pro- podcast rather than play your bagpipes? I think we find it. <laughs> well, maybe you know. If only I was a bit more talented, maybe I'd get invited on Turkish television. <laughs> <laughs> you can. As Ma- you, we've only discussed this as Matt's glamorous assistant. The job oh, yes. for you. I could go on Turkish X Factor and sing the theme tune of uh, Sons and Daughters. <laughs> wow! It'd, it'd be a winner. Excellent. Well, 
thank you very much for joining us in the first uh, rather gloomy uh, week of uh, 2021. It's going to get better, guys. Come on, it is. It is. It is, I'm, it is. I, I agree. I'm not just over promising. We've just, you know, we've we've got we've got to at least have have something to to cling to. What no, I mean, I can... the end is in sight. I mean, there is. I mean, I mean, in a good you... way. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is. I mean, the end is in sight. I mean, the vaccine is here and obviously the government could well mess up the administration ah. and the rollout, but actually it is coming. So I, I am actually feeling oddly optimistic. It's a very unsettling feeling, but I'll get used to it. And the end is also coming to this podcast. Thank you so much to Alistair Campbell. Um, it's always a joy to have him on. I'm sure you'll agree. Thank you to uh, Mr. Withers, who not only regales us with his international... He is the last of the famous international playboys, even though he can't... <laughs> even though he has to do it on Zoom these days. Um, but he also does all the wonderful bits and bobs behind the scenes that mean that this podcast is indeed in your ears at this very moment. Thank you, Cash Boyle. As always, the humour... Um, comes directly from you. Um, <laughs> we will be back next week. Until then, Mr. Campbell's popped back to play his bagpipes. Here you go. <laughs>